Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Tuesday, the 18th of June, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we continue our reading of Chapter 5, Communist Strategy and the Party Form. We're joined again by Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution, Lexi of Swampside Chats, C. Derek Varn of Symptomatic Redness, and Dan, friend of the show. This week, I have the new patrons JV, Ryan Tardiff, Patrick Higgins, Ben Hanchu, and Ryan Freiberger to thank. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month and get access to the Patreon-only podcast episodes, along with other cool stuff like the right to vote on the next Reading Group series. When we hit 100 patrons, the Patreon-only podcast will become a fortnightly endeavour. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, back to the discussion. The periodic purge was also to be one of the central weapons the Bolshevik leadership promoted against corruption and bureaucratic degeneration once the party had taken power. In this character, it was, to put it mildly, wholly ineffective. Individual bureaucrats and corrupt elements might be purged, but the overall effect of the purges was to increase the power of the party bureaucracy as such over the rank and file, and therefore reduce and indeed rapidly eliminate the ability of the proletariat as a class to fight for its class interests through the Communist Party. So-called Leninist sectarians believe that splitting organisationally from the right and repeated purges will make a pure revolutionary organisation. The political collapse of such sectarians into the most abject opportunism has been a repeated failure history of Trotskyism and Maoism. The process is going on before our eyes in the British Socialist Workers' Party. Or in the American American ISO, who just dissolved Mm -hmm. so they could uh, help Democrats more. Also, maybe a rape scandal, but it was five years old and no one cared until very recently, so I probably don't believe that. Funny that the British British SWP party, about five or six years ago, it split over relations as well. Actually, as a side note, not to get too much into the weeds here, those rape scandals happen within months of each other, but the ISO one only really has mattered when Haymarket Books got real rich. Mm. I'm going to have a lot of people very mad at me for saying that, but that's an objective truth. So Yeah, I I think... uh, (laughs) How come they got so rich? They they publish a lot of Democratic Party material right now, and that, that endowment is tangentially related to the ISO, but since they have like Rebecca Solnit and all the, like a lot of, a lot of stuff around Black Lives Matter, it's coming to vogue with not just even the DSA, like just straight up normal Democrats and they have the copyrights to it. They're, they're flush with cash. The uh, partial takeover, I mean, the part, the dissolution of membership does seem to have come from a grassroots kind of serious disgust at the, at the rape scandal. But some of the leadership siding with that seems to be more related. It, it did seem suspiciously tied to arguing over who has control over Haymarket books and dissolving the party clarifies that or dissolving the organization, excuse me, that a party clarifies that. So all this stuff is super icky. The history of Trotskyism is, is like rife with this, but Maoism to me is like the biggest example of this. The Cultural Revolution's whole purpose was to was to quote purge capitalist rotors and make the party well. more more democratic. And yeah, fucking <laughs> like the end, uh, Deng Xiaoping's in power. 
super NEP, NEP on steroids. And uh, also the student, like free speeches for this technically, I mean, it wasn't real forbidden in first time period after, after the cultural revolution. It's just the opposite of what it said it was going to do is what happened. I mean, if you look at what happened in 19, in the late 19-teens and 1920s with this, it, with the Soviet Union, that we shouldn't have been surprised. It's, it's happened before. Yeah, the term of art that I like to use for this uh, on Swamp Side, the sort of psychosexual language, is a tight butthole authoritarianism. People are, you know, constitutionally trying to close up and shut everything out. And the thing about being the party of iron discipline is that you just end up a really uptight asshole. But you know what's what's yeah. funny about this though? It's almost always done in the name of of being more democratic. We we have to suppress right. these elements to be more democratic, even though what we're doing is killing all formal democracy within the party. Mm. It's also you can't really settle these debates, especially if you have a membership policy such that you can get a huge influx of members. Like they're just going to be reopened again eventually. The same social forces are still at play in and in, on your organization. Exactly. That's that's a major point, Dan. That's what I was thinking when I was reading this. I wrote on the side of the page. It's like, you know, if that's the case, you're going to have to repeatedly purge, repeatedly purge, repeatedly purge every five, ten years when you get a big lump of new members in. It's just Converse, not a feasible long-term strategy. Conversely, a democracy of nine people is meaningless. So, like, when you're talking about democracy, but you're purging and purging and purging for purity, like, <laughs> you can democratically make your, your platform in lines with nine people in the party because, like, you're all friends and hang out, and of course you're all going to vote together. It's so transparently problematic. If you're going to be democratic and you're constantly purging people, you, you don't have a real democratic base. Conversely, the social forces that are, you have a problem with don't go away, and anytime you have new members, you're going to have to do it again. Screw that, Derek. If 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 you, we were in a party together, I'd vote against you and everything just out of pure spite. This is why I was a Bordigist and said to hell with democracy for years. Yeah, because listen, we're socialists. We'll never be in a in a room, you know, bigger than ten people. So we don't need democracy. We can just kind of go with the flow. Like I heard a an explanation of organic centralism, and that like it's like you know when you're a group of friends and you come together and decide what movie you're going to watch. You don't like vote on it or whatever. You just make a decision. And my immediate thought was like, well, yeah, like when you have five friends watching a movie, not, you're not talking about ginormous social policy. You know what I mean? With like thousands of people or more actually implicated. Nah, that scales up. What's the problem? It does. I was in a cinema the other day and there was like 1100 of us and we had an argument. We could choose any <laughs> film ever. <laughs> And it was fine. The only, th the only thing that went wrong was there was 1,200 different votes. So we had to sit down and watch 1,200 different <laughs> films in a row. We're not okay, though. So he's going to get into like the stuff here again about how the right always comes in and makes ultimatums and also gets backing from... That's interesting. When they get backing from the capitalist side, because if you're a capitalist, who are you going to back? The revolutionaries are the the right of the Socialist Party. He even mentions George Galloway in here. It's quite interesting reading this with what's going on in, in Britain at the moment. So let, let's just read this paragraph. As a result, the right is characterized by persistent use of ultimatums, splits and party union, etc. Bureaucratic censorship against the left. In the German SPD, this had begun well before the war with the misuse of Engels' 1895 preface to the civil war in France and the suppression of the first edition of Kautsky's The Road to Power. 
In more recent times, the British Social Democratic Party 1981 split from Labour was only the most extreme example of a routine practice of ultimatums, sabotage, etc. of the Labour and trade union right. So like they, they formed and they ended up merging with the Liberals. So a lot of the Liberals in England that, you know, the, the De Liberal Democrats, they're called now. That's why they got Democrat in the Liberal Party. That's those guys. They split from the, from the party in 1981. I think it was when Michael Foote was in charge. Like at the moment, I don't know if you've been following Brexit, but there's been another split from the Labour Party. This group called the Tigers, their independent group. Are they They've like done exactly the same thing? They, so they split from the from from Corbyn's, and they've actually merged with a couple of Tories that have split from the Tory Party. <laughs> wow! So like, shit's getting real. You know what's fascinating to me about this is. Is the right the right wingers ultimatums for right now? I think in America are, are going to be called the left. <laughs> like they're giving us to drag us kicking and screaming into the Democratic Party. It's actually like it's it's like transparently happening again. Well, and I think what's what's interesting about and different about now versus like the nineteen seventies or even the nineteen eighties is that things like the overall for lack of a better term, Overton window has shifted so far to the right that like in the grand scheme of things, the right wing of socialism is incredibly left wing and crazy. Like you see people freaking the fuck out about AOC and Corbyn. For those of us who are communists, we're just like, what the fuck? Like, this is what you're freaking out about. Wait till you hear what I want. You know, you're scared of a little bit of Sweden. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe they're talking about Uppsala though. That's that's a hell of a shit all. Yeah, well, I mean, our Swedish contingent isn't here to talk shit about Sweden today, so um, <laughs> you're gonna have to. I'm only joking. I have no idea what Uppsala is like. I just made that up. <laughs> uh, Tom and Dan are gonna have to hold down the the shitting on Europe it, with, with legitimacy <laughs> for us. I got some. Do you want to hear? I was in a. Somebody was giving me some Twitter hassle today. I thought this would, might be. Uh, you guys might find that interesting. He, somebody told me, please don't try and insult your guests this time. <laughs> the Americans are always so squeamish. To which I replied, if I can't insult an American, what's the use of hosting a podcast? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. Me. It's just getting to uh, insult Derek. Tom, I'm, offend I'm offended, Tom. How dare you? I think maybe there's this uh, inter-Irish shit poster in me that, that agrees with you, Tom, that thinks you should make fun of me and we should challenge each other to a duel every day. Like, oh my god! <laughs> All right, well, let's at least let's save the dueling until after we get through McNair on the party forum. Dueling's better than splitting. That's all I have to say. Uh, who wants to take this paragraph? Could, could I read something before that, really quick? The right represents itself as the democratic representative of the more backwards elements of the working class, ordinary working class monarchists, for example. So that it claims that even when it is in a minority in the movement, it is nonetheless entitled to a majority in its leadership or to control of what the movement says. I thought this was a very strong point that you see often in the socialist movement, that there's always a silent majority for the most sort of right-wing idea of what socialism is, the most right-wing socialist politics. I think that's kind of a weird thing as well, because, you know, like if you get talking to people, it just like in normal language, somebody who's not even like political and you say, oh, I think it's wrong that like rich kids should be born into wealth. They'll say, yeah, that's a bit lousy. In reality, I think people are really pretty fucking radical when you get them out of all the stereotypical language that we talk in. 
so the, the claim that these right wing elements are, are the majority, I find that hard. It really annoys me. It just annoys yeah, me. And me too, but it's super common right now. And you have George Galloway in England, but I mean, like we, we have people doing that in the United States about borders and stuff in a way. I mean, yeah. like even Bernie Sanders in a way that that is uh, more than a little worrying. And it really pisses me off because not only do they claim to be speaking for the normie majority, which I don't know. I, I teach kids. I don't like I don't think normies are, are a thing. I've never met a normal person in my life. You're all weirdos. You've, and, you've uh, never actually met me. You've never met me. That's true. But you're an Irish person, so you're inherently weird. So, <laughs> what is normalcy uh, in Ireland, Derek? <laughs> but no, in all seriousness, like, like this is a big movement in the United States right now, I think, in, in, in a very real way that we're seeing this tendency to, like, well, we got to give them some, you know, some uh, legitimacy. And you, you, you know, like the monarchist or the, the religious or w- whatever. And, uh, you know, I'm not anti-religious personally, and I'm, I'm definitely not, but I'm not, I'm definitely not a monarchist. And I, I know a lot of people who have anxieties about these concerns, but a lot of times if you, str- if you talk normally and not in left speak, people actually agree with the more radical position. But if you talk like an asshole, then they hate you. I think you're both are correct, but I think it's a little, little bit overstated. I think what we could say with any degree of certainty is that the general population is more liberal than they are like super socially conservative. It's more nuanced than that. That's not like true in all cases. Like for example, I live in a small ass podunk town outside of Phoenix. I was walking my dog the other day and I heard some like rednecks you know, uh, sitting on their patio talking about, like, immigrants. And it wasn't even, like, hardcore neo-Nazi, like, hate speak. They were just, like, talking about them coming over. You know what I mean? And I I think people like Angela Nagel and and Bernie Sanders are not representative of the large majority of people who have any, even a vague sense of, like, working-class identity. But at the same time, like, there is an element of that I would agree with you, Sophie, but even go so far to say it's more nuanced often than the same person. I want to talk about my family for a second. I have, I have a, my, um, a family member who is super cool with black people, immigrants, when they work with them or in their daily life, but will spout that shit constantly otherwise, which is fascinating to me. So if no, like, that's incredibly common. You're right. That's like how it is usually. Yeah, so like if you if you like take them and and show them Juan down the street, they're gonna be all about helping Juan down the street. But if you talk about immigrants as an abstract category, they'll spit out whatever dumb shit they've heard yesterday. Like there's even in, there's ideological justifications for this too. Like you know, well individuals are one thing, but as a group, and I find that like n- neither the popular discourse around this right now seems to just pretend that like. Not only does that not exist within the class in one way or the other, but it like often exists within the same fucking person. And another like, another place you see this too, or another way you see this too, is that like in my experience with most white trash or like redneck people in the U.S., like there's kind of this idea that they're all like phobes. You know what I mean? And you talk to them, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they're just like, "I don't give a shit if you fuck a dude, or I don't give a shit if you want to be a woman." Like they don't care. You know what I mean? They just, you know, they're not concerned with that kind of shit. 
I think generally speaking, I mean, it depends on where you live, but generally speaking, like the right is more libertarian and socially liberal than everyone seems to care to admit. Who wants to give this paragraph a go? Marxists who wish to oppose the present state rather than to manage it loyally can then only be in partial unity with the loyalist wing of the workers' movement. We can block with them on particular issues. We can and will take membership in parties and organizations they control and violate their constitutional rules and discipline in order to fight their politics. But we have to organize ourselves independently of them. That means that we need our own press, finances, leadership committees, conferences, branches, and other organizations. It does not matter whether these are formally within parties, which the right controls, formally outside of them, or part inside and part outside. This is tactics. The problem is not to purify the movement, which is illusory, but to fight the politics of class collaborationism. Now, I gotta say, when I first read this, it sounded awfully like a justification for Labor Party entryism. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. That's just like the first thing that came to mind when I read this. Yeah, and um, given that the CPGB actually did that, I wonder right. too. So this is this is the bit I forgot. This is like how he squares the circle of, you know, splitting was right. He's trying to make the point that like that split is correct. And our organizations, we have to constantly argue and expose the basically the collaborationism. And that's kind of what he's saying, that we have to keep ourselves somewhat separate and always bang the drum against the right of socialism. As far as I can see, and he, he's making the case whether you want to try and take over a party and bang it within, the, within that party. If you do that, you need to maintain your separation. Now, I, I don't agree with, I, I just simply don't, I don't see like the taking over of a Labour Party, you know, uh, the Labour Party say in, in UK, it's essentially, a, it's not a radical party. It's of the right of social democratic parties. So I, I just can't see how it could possibly end up working. I just specifically to do with the critique that he's just given. So it, it seems weird that he would, in essence, put forward like the strategy that they tried in the, like this is not the first time it's tried in the Labour Party in the 70s, and it was a failure. What do people think about it? I don't know. I'm honestly, like, mildly skeptical, honestly, which is a difficult position for me to hold because he, he brings up the Communist Manifesto a little bit and talks about how, like, you know, something to the effect of, like, Communist parties are not supposed to, like, be separate from, like, you know, the Labour parties of their the country or whatever, like... In that sense, I can kind of see the justification for this, but I think in practice, it's a dangerous game. And I think you really run the risk of letting yourself be absorbed by the right wing of socialism. With that being said, I, I think it's also very different in the United Kingdom. And maybe, you know, I'm just an American chauvinist who is afraid of the Democrats. Because I don't see the Democrats as being even remotely a Labour Party. But the, the strategic equivalent of this in the United States is to do what the DSA is doing. And I think that is a complete dead end. I almost think if you're going to do electoralism, you should either run independent or just run as a Republican who is also an open communist and just fuck with them. Like, that's almost a better strategy to me than trying to, you know, ally yourself with the Democrats. 
I just want to make the, the basic point that a big difference is that the Democratic Party isn't really a party in the same sense as the the Labour Party. There's all these sort of extra party organizations like the DCC, DCC or whatever, that you can't get control of even if you were to somehow build a majority of support within quote-unquote Democratic voters. Like, it's not really an inst- a singular institution that you could take over, even hypothetically. Yeah, the, the, the Democratic Party is kind of a legal fiction. It has a low bar to entry. The organizations that run it are, are paracongressional. Um, also, a lot of this stuff assumes parliamentary constitutional systems, which the U.S. is not, and so forth. But I also am going to just say the elephant in the room to me is even a, a, under Corbyn, the Labour Party has the least voting tracking with with the statistical working class in the UK that it's ever had, even under Blair. Explain that. The voting trends are now now follow American trend lines being youth, youthful and urban votes for Labour and elderly and non-urban votes for Tories. And the only income slash productivity variable that tracks to working classness is age, not your job which means that in aggregate the labor voters are slightly poorer right now but it doesn't track to like union membership or any of that and that's new that's only happened in the last 10 years and that you know there's been since probably the end of blair there's been an americanization of the style of politics in the uk the, the, I, this I is an object. Like. There's been pew study after pew study on this. I know people don't want to hear it because it no, no, shoots no, no. you. But you don't buy no, it. No, no, no. Let, let me let me be clear what I what I mean. As in, uh, I'm sure that it's true, but that doesn't mean that that's the trend. As in, for example, like just because the older uh, working class people that are in the UK now vote Tory, a lot, most of them doesn't mean that the young are going to vote Tory when they get old. It's not something extrapolable because, you know, the, the days of, of the youth being b- blasted with the Tory press in the same way, they're just not exposed to it in the same way that they used to be. So, like, I, I think that, like, there can be structural differences in the politics. So I, I, I don't like these things of extrapolating from age as a prediction of what somebody will do in the future because their father did it. I just think we, oh, no, we can't do I, that. But so I'm not that's, saying that's, that, but what I'm saying is you can't extrapolate from their class position anymore, which is actually, which means Well, if they're that, poorer, you, you did say if they're poorer, they vote Labour. So there definitely is a... If they're poorer know, and urban, they vote Labour. And younger. Yeah, and younger. Like, and you know, we can't, it I, might mean labor becomes a working class party again, but it does indicate that it isn't right now. And so, unless you, unless you do this thing that all Marxists do to pretend that somehow working class is an ideological position and not a sociological one, and in which case all this is meaningless. I'm not making that case. I'm just talking about like specifics. I, I have, you know, this idea of like people always get more right-wing when they get older and stuff, you know, well, I'm obviously someone who's gone the opposite way and you are too, Derek. Yeah, no, no, I don't think, I think like, I hope they're a bunch of flamethrowing anarchists by the time they're 70, but like, well, maybe not anarchists, but flamethrowing, I'm okay with. Just just flamethrowing carnies. Just carnies. Flamethrowing post-communizer neo-Kalskis, yes. Oh my God. 
I'm all about like walkers, <laughs> walkers with Molotov cocktails just lining the walker. I'm okay with that. That's like, I, you know, when I, we were kids, <laughs> when we were kids, we, we used to play this game of throwing Molotov cocktails. We, we'd, we'd hold it until the flame would get as close as it could to the to the petrol, and then we'd throw it. And the game was like whoever could hold on to it longest. It was a very dangerous game. Wow, <laughs> I'm amazed nobody ever got actually wow. seriously hurt. That's like one of those games that, you know, the dangerous new game that your kids might be playing tonight. <laughs> and and like, of course, in America, no kid is ever playing it. But in but in Ireland, yeah, we're like, <laughs> oh, Maldive cocktail. Let's go, boys. Let's go. Oh, my God. Um, Just like Grandpa Seamus used to do. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that makes lawn darts look really, 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 really not that impressive anymore. Um, what is it? Long, long, long dart. dart. You basically, it, it's this American game in the 50s where you basically threw knives at each other's feet. Um. <laughs> I, I was in a pub. I was in a pub on an island of, of the south of Ireland. And there was these girls. It, it was the wildest night I ever had in my life. They were like 17. And it was, the pub was quite big. It was like maybe 20 meters long when you're inside of a big square one. And they were playing full pub darts. So people who were drinking and sitting down over their heads was this dark game where there's a dark one and they decided to walk. They were, they were firing darts the full length of the pub. My God, it was, it was totally insane. If only we had that fire in our socialist. That, that fire is called vodka. Actually, here I've got an interesting. I can't let this story go because I'll never I remember it again. But there was it was on a crazy island, and they had had cars like you don't have to have an even have an MOT. It's like you have to have your car in standard. But when you're living on the islands in Ireland, you don't need to have car insurance. You don't need tax. You don't need anything. It's like a special privilege. The islands banger cars. These cars that have no sometimes no seats in them, but everybody. Because there's only tiny island, everybody knows everybody. There's only like a hundred people on it. They leave the keys in the car. So like these girls, they just like they were drunk and they got somebody's just somebody's car and they basically went and brought it for a drive. And what did they do? They drove it off the pier and into the Atlantic. What? And yeah, and but luckily the uh, the tide was like half out. So like they were able to climb out and swim back to the shore. But the next day, there's no cop on the island. Like, so they have this guy wakes up and he's like, where's my fucking car? And he walks down to the, like to the shop and the pier is there and he sees like his number plate sticking up because it landed like vertically. And uh, he's like, fuck this. So he rings the he rings the cops. The cop has to come over on the ferry like about seven hours later. And the, everybody knows who it was. It's these fucking crazy girls. So they were like, the cop was questioning them and he was like saying like, girls, did you steal the car? And they're like, no, no, you didn't do it. And he says, look, girls, I know you stole the car. Uh, you might as well just admit it. And they're like, definitely, there's no way with us. And then he pulled out, he pulled out of his pocket a digital camera that was, he found in the car, in the sea. And it was one of the girls that left it there and it had pictures, the selfies they'd taken of themselves in the car, in the sea. Oh my God, I love them. And they were like, they were like, how do you explain this, girls? And they were like, ah, oh, bollocks. Can I, I want, can you give me their phone numbers, Tom? I, know, I, I never met them again, but they were the craziest women I ever met in my fucking life. 
That's oh, waifu material. I'm know, just where saying. are we gone? Where are we gone? I can't remember what we're talking about. Uh, you know what? I, I was just gonna say, Lexi, did you think this paragraph is how everybody from like Marxist Leninist and basically anti revisionist to Sakara Jacobin can justify using this book for their strategy? Essentially, yes. And essentially, like, this book lacks a not a, it's not exactly lax, but just doesn't like do justice to the sort of ultra left or even like post left critique of like the way like the leftist culture or bourgeois logic or whatever fucking construct it is that draws you in, you know, can cause just compromises you because it's all well and good to say that. All right, listen, I'm going to go join the democratic party, but I'm going to do it to fight the Democrats. You know, I, I, happen to know at least one organizer in the DSA that thinks of her work in the Democratic Party as destroying the Democrats. You know, Ev everything in my being screams at this notion that, mm, especially when you have the anti-political trends in, you know, all representative governments, you have to acknowledge that the odiousness of associating yourself with this machine is great. And so, you have to do your damnedest to stand apart from exactly these forces. So when McNair was talking about the difference between the manifesto and the demands in the manifesto versus Marx's program for the French Workers Party, he also brings out the idea of a separate party. I don't know if he like always holds to this or something, but like, you know, that's the whole point of a separate party. And however you kind of think of party, right, is to form some pole of opposition. And I don't think like forming like a tiny little party has no base makes all that much sense. But like that would be the point of orienting towards that is that you well, can try to create a credible opposition. See, I hear this around Bernie Sanders. And, and this is where the, the American situation is really different than the, than the UK one. The nature of the executive of the Democratic Party, it, let's say we let's say for a miracle, like Bernie wins and he even makes Mike Ravel as vice president. You know, like we're in crazy world now. And that happens. And the Democrats sweep everything but the but judiciary. When I hear a lot of these people also talk about the need for the abolishing the Senate, I actually don't know that I agree with abolishing the judiciary. I think that's nutty, but limiting the judiciary's power of view. You have to democratize the fucking... Yeah, democ yeah democratizing... Yeah, but most of them don't talk about that. They talk about abolishing it. But yeah, democratizing the judiciary, et cetera, and so forth. Abolish is just like a smurf for, for them. You know, I'd like to go abolish some, you know, abolish berry pie. Yeah, yeah but like abolish... But um, so, but where we're putting all of our strategic money, I mean, money, actually, literally money too, right now, if they won, they couldn't do any of that. Not a single point on their platform is a position that they're investing all of their time in supporting would would do the things that would that even meet the minimum program that the DSA wants. Bernie can't even do by himself Medicare for all. Not possible. You can't do that from the executive. Now, that's not the case of a of a prime minister from a party. He could do it. Bernie could do it if he had the Senate and the House with him, couldn't he? Yeah, but the, the, right. he's so, not like, going to have the so Senate. And, you won't and have it this time. Even if it's primarily Democratic, he's not going to have 
the ability to get Medicare for all is just not going to happen. I know that, but like if you think about politics, it's long term. So you try and do it. Maybe you won't get it this time. Maybe you push and you push and you get it. Like right. I think you're knocking on something interesting, and it's the exact opposite of the way that American socialists actually do politics. But the McNairist thing that you could do in America is elect legislatures who like don't have to execute capitalism, right? So and that would be the thing to do, not to do what American socialists actually do. Which is to back an executive candidate. I think the long-term thing that you brought up, Tom, is really interesting because I think the point of backing Bernie Sanders is that they see it as a shortcut, basically. It's it's a way to get around having to do the long-term stuff. So I, I think they actually have sort of the opposite view of the doing this as a long-term way to build up socialism. Yeah, I don't even... The problem of the right. Like, it's it's the problem of, of wanting, like, abandoning a strategy of patience and saying, we need to do something now, Bernie Sanders. You know what I mean? But, but I think I think it's even worse than that in America, as in like at the moment, Bernie came from nowhere and they're just like, fuck it, let's ride a birdie, Bernie. Like the people don't think he's going to get the Senate and the House to get it through, but they just are uh, going, he's a way of voicing something. And I think that's at the level of it gets to in America at the moment. That's just a function of the weakness of things. What I kind of like from this paragraph, I've just been thinking about it here while you've been chatting, is like, I think it needs an extra... I think this book might need an extra paragraph or an extra section on like the idea of like a commie. We have a parasite strategy where we, if you take the labor, what's happening in labor or what's happening in the Democratic Party, what you should be, if you're going to be serious about it, you should be knowing there's going to be split in the future and you should push it, push it, push it, push it. And you can parasite and get the more radical view into the mainstream and then there's your split. At the moment in like say America, there is no point in being a small communist party in this little place or that little place. It won't have an effect. But let's say you parasited the Democratic Party and you took 30, 40, 50 percent of the party with you. That's a reasonable long-term strategy to implement now. It is reasonable Ooh. on paper. It is, but culturally speaking, for some reason, the people <clears throat> that do enter the Democratic Party, no matter how oppositional they conceive of themselves to be, cannot bring themselves to actually walk the walk and perform as oppositional yeah. agents. And the I, way I, that you I, can I, get I, yeah, on the right, I agree with that. But, the, the right uh, who, who, do that. Mormons can block to to vote in a certain way it, that leftists can't for some reason. Has has anybody explicitly make that case for a parasitic strategy? Me. Every DSA Sorry. person who's come on my show has been asked the following question: When are you willing to split the Democratic Party? And I have never ever gotten a real answer to that. Like, what I mean is that if you want us to enter this. To do you know that we are going to have to declare war on the right wing of the Democratic Party and in a real sense? And if you look at what if you look at the position that they're always in, I'm going to give you an example of this from America right now. Uh, Alexandria Sasha Cortez got a lot of shit for saying she would have to back Nancy Pelosi um, as Speaker of the House because all the people who were running against Pelosi were to the right of her. And guess what? She was right. 
I mean, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez was right about that. But what I pointed out to the people who were defending her, and I wasn't coming down on her, but I was like, you're going to always be in that situation because the right wing is more is actually more willing to take the risk because structurally, if they lose, they can run to the Republicans and the left has nowhere to run to, period. They should run to the fucking Republicans and fuck them up. Look, I, 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 I've actually advocated that. I've said yeah. that people thought I'm insane for saying that, but I was like, no, no you got, you got to fuck up both parties. Like, yeah. look, how are we going to do that? But, but seriously, like Derek, let, let's take this. I, I'm deadly serious with this point. Like I've talked about it before. It's just like, you know, when you read the book and it brings back the ideas. Like if you say, if you ask like a politician, when are you going to split with the thing? They can never say, they never say, oh, I'll do it at this point. They can't say it. But that doesn't mean that the strategists and the theorists and whoever, like, if it's you or whoever it is, like, those, for example, Derek, I haven't heard those ones because do you know why? They're all on the goddamn Patreon pay feed. So nobody Sorry. hears it. Sorry. But you know what well, I mean? I've had you know, 20 people here, but yes, you're right. No, but yeah, you know what it, I mean? So it, what I'm trying to say is it's not something that I hear as a strategy. I don't hear anybody like Novara Media or any of these people or, you know, uh, social Democrat like Chapo or anybody saying we got to go there and push it, push it, push it. And then if it comes to it, then we're going to smash it open and we're going to take 50 percent of the party with us. And then we're away, lads. Then we're away. Christman then we're actually going to. Craftsman on Chapo actually admitted that was kind of his goal once when he was drunk, but he was immediately. Even even and Chapo's panel was like looked at in horror, which tells you the. And when I say that, because I'm not talking to politicians. I mean, this is the thing. Like when I'm when I say this to people, they're like, "Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. When are you going to do it?" The the problem is, is that when you say it, do you know what you sound like? A fucking trot. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's true. I'm not broken. Here's like an obvious issue that that's not really being addressed, and that there is there is a cultural and social psychological component to this to where see this is why i think even trying to split the democrats now is a dead end strategy it's not it has to do with the culture around the dsa and this as a strategy they they will never ever really advocate for a split from the democratic party because they are right wing socialists and lexi and i have even talked a little bit about like how we would do this as like communists and lexi suggested you know, if you're in a, a blue state, you you run as a troll Republican, and if you're in a red state, you run as a troll Democrat. I don't think even in a, I live in a red state. I don't think even in a in, in a red state, a Republican state, it would make sense to run as a troll Democrat. And the reason for that no. is because no. the DSA has spoiled the strategy. Like the whole thing with it is just to let yourself be absorbed and ally yourself with the national bourgeoisie. There's no way around that now. And I think. If you're going to run as either major party, just fuck with the Republicans. Like, right, there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Like, so there's another exactly. call yourself a Marxist Lincolnist. Like, fuck it. Like, why? And here's the thing too. Like, instead of this paragraph of McNair, I think honestly, the anti-politics people have a better take on this. We shouldn't be trying to be like polite politicians and you know work with the system or whatever to get menial reforms that will never happen what we should do is get people in whether they're independent or they're running as troll republicans or whatever just get them in and, and tell and just get them railing against congress like the early SPD day did just get them screaming at them about fucking imperialism 
You know, like uh, there was an indigenous woman who was recently, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was elected in the Democratic Party as one of the uh, kind of lefty social democratic people. And she said, impeach the motherfucker. And she said the F word as a politician. I think we need to do that, but on steroids. We need to do that and be like, impeach all you motherfuckers. You all fucking suck. And you're going to fucking let the world drown rather than do something about it. You see what I'm saying? Like, we need to tap into that pissed off anti-political mood right now. There's a lot of things that the anti-politics people say that I don't agree with. But they have some, they have a better take on this strategy than I think McNair has right here. I guess full disclosure, I, I'm a DSA member. I was, I used to be in the Refoundation Caucus when it, it existed. Reluctant DSA member, I guess you could say. And from my perspective, the time to do the split was two years ago. And now that there's all this media attention and growth, even the people in the caucus that used to at least formally say that we should split and build a workers' party, which is momentum and spring and all of them. The incentives have now shifted that they call that, I think the quote is, fruitless and sectarian. So, like, I don't want to be too determinist, but I, I think the time has passed for there to be a real split. Like, I think the, the subsumption is just kind of what is going to happen. Well, yeah, the, no. the other thing about the DSA is it's not, a, and it's not a party and it's not structured like a party. There's no, like, the, the national is barely accountable to the locals and the locals are barely accountable to the national. And thus, there's no real democratic mechanism on and all of it. And honestly, to, to, to kind of bring it in, the only way they did it, the DSA grows is that it can't function that way. And I know that sounds insane, but... All these groups, yeah, if they true. were accountable to each other, would hate each other immediately and would not tolerate each other. And and so, like, the elephant in the room to me about this strategy is, to me, this this chapter points out it's never worked. This has been attempted. Well, yeah. Yeah, well, look, here, the thing is, like, I know Dan might think they should have split before. Do you know, you want to ask me the time you should do a split would be, let's say, if Bernie won and he's the president... Then you fucking split. You split a point of maximum power and impact. If you split like two years ago, it'll just it'll just wishy wash, and we'll all, you'll end up like just another small split in the end. Like the thing is, like I really? think honestly, because what, because like there's there are like there is some like independent quote political energy that's being routed into these enough. electoral efforts. Well, yeah, right near enough, but it what the cost of associating yourself with the democratic party has alienated a lot of the proletariat that may have been involved. Otherwise it's, it's, it's hard to calculate the, the negative value, the, the political stink of throwing yourself into the swamp. Like Look, you, it's, you, you can barely calculate it. I don't think someone like Bernie has a big stink on him. And I think like, lots of others do but i i just thinking like if you when you do a split like that like the instinct of all of us is to split early and that's just it's like the it's like the thing of strategy of 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 patience you got to have like a, a split of patience strategy too look i i just think to be honest with you i think this paragraph is is something that mcnair doesn't deal with in this book at all and to be honest with you if anything good comes out of our discussions on this book Maybe a, an actual formalization of a, of something like this idea of parasitism as a strategy, because I think that's I think that's a, a, a very viable strategy, to be honest with you. Maybe it has to be something that's implemented correctly and not just get in and then just like go the first time. But like literally a long term strategy 
and then break yeah. and destroy. That's how you did. That's how you, you could you, destroy you, the you, Democratic you, Party. You would have to be accountable to a different party, essentially. The thing is, it doesn't have to be a formal unity or party. It could literally be that the the strategy is out there and everybody understands so, it. So, so in loads America, of people are talk about it. In America, this has happened one time in our history, and it was not. And it was not actually a. It was at a point of maximum impact, but it Lincoln. was not. Yeah, exactly. But it was not a. It wasn't planned. It was a collapse, and an opportunistic an opportunistic split with Lincoln representing. The, the the true center and the radical Republicans representing the left, and and you're completely right. And and but the and it worked because it happened at a time of war, where, where the norms of American politics were also frozen and the Constitution was actually suspended. And that that is not something anyone can talk like. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. When I hear all these minimum programs in Jacobin, when they talk about uh, you know getting rid of the Senate or whatever, I'm always like, you realize you can't do that in America democratically. You can't. Well, you can. You can do it with a referendum. No, uh, you can't. You, uh, you, can. no, you cannot. Can not, you can. You can change the. Well, no. You can change. You can change the the Constitution. You literally cannot. Oh, you have to, the only way you can change the Constitution is through an amendment. But you can't yeah. do it through a referendum. But like, how do you do an amendment? It goes to the people, doesn't it? No, no, it goes, no. goes to the states. Two-thirds. <laughs> it goes okay, to the two-thirds yeah. majority of the state representations, which is set up by the parties, which is set up by the parties in many states by, in their constitution, which literally names the parties that are legitimate to do it. I mean, like, and the, our constitution, its existence only came about through illegality. And I don't mean like a bailing from the British. Our own constitutional convention was illegal. Um, well, look, what's the Revolutions podcast guy called? Mike Duncan won and he <laughs> says like in the rock paper scissors of uh, revolutionary power an armed force will always beat the constitution you know you know that's a, that's at the stage where you get those things turned over Look, yeah but trying to we... talk a bunch of leftists to going into the army like, like well even well even yeah even even then like this gets back to the earlier problem that we were talking about about how the marxist concept of like getting into parliament and having enough seats to form a government without any bourgeois party and then enacting your minimum program and thus triggering a civil war that will never ever happen in the united states that's rubbish look the thing is we can't say things will never happen but the thing is we're an awful long way from things happening that's all you can do you, you, like you know like if you ask them what did what what was the thing that lenin think a, a communist revolution was possible in 1916 or something he thought it wouldn't happen for like what? What did he say? Like there was some quote like he thought it wouldn't happen for fifty years. Yeah, or something. yeah, and then it did. You know, it was great. Yeah, so but, we, but, we, but like, but we're talking. I think the, the, the Democratic yeah. Party is is um is not where that wellspring is going to come from. And also yeah. the, the 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 glaring operation in in, in all this with with nineteen sixteen is if the if you know what I don't think anyone I don't think McNair addressed this either if the Day had acted principally, World War One would have never happened, and thus the Bolsheviks would have never came to power. End of discussion. They could not have defeated the Tsarist army with even a field army without the without basically the collapse brought on by World War One. That's what defeatism kind of meant. So, and, and this whole 
thing is based off a series of unfortunate events, which no one wanted. And the only reason they won was by getting what they did not want. Like, if you think about what that actually means, this whole book becomes kind of laughable. Ah, like, let's calm down here. Look, that's going to always be the way. There's always... Look, uh, go watch The Godfather. If he hadn't gone, like, by the toll road, he would have been grand. You know. I mean, Derek, I I think he does, like, he is... He's addressing a lot of, like, the fundamental dynamics behind these things. But he's not taking it to their logical, frankly, Menshevik conclusions. Yeah, like, no, I, I agree. I mean, like, I think I think McNair is on to something, but I'm very frustrated that, it, like, you, you still have to do this doublespeak about the meaning of everything, even in this. Like, his conclusions, you, you have to hold two almost opposite opinions of the same time. Like, like the whole Lennon was wrong, but he wasn't, but he was, but he wasn't. Well, I, 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 I think that that kind of, like, isolating certain premises and arguing for those on their own merits is the only way that you can take these things apart. And so like, I don't know. I appreciate, I really appreciate that part of the book. And the problem is that, you know, I guess it's in one of these, like one of these nuances here and the devil is in the details that one of these sub arguments has a problem. We need to do the same thing, locate the premise. Here's the here's the issue, and I'm gonna. I, I actually do think this is serious, and not just with Magnier. This is something Marxism has been struggling with since the Brumaire. The whole line of "we do not make our own history by our own means, except when we do it collect." I mean, like, except we'll be able to do it in the future collectively through means of, of communism. That so much of this is stochastic, and the only way strategically, like, I'm reading other books on strategy right now that kind of co- to, to kind of contrast with this. The only way to do that is to account for the, st- the stochasticity of any given situation. But that means having a strategy, one singular strategy, or saying you can know what even what a Marxist center even is a priori, seems impossible when you really take that seriously. If you, if you take that whole material condition things to its logical conclusion, you can't have one form that's going to fit everything. And McNair's trying to say that, but also still trying to say there is one strategy. Yeah. The strategy of patience doesn't give you basically a directive as to how to act within your specific country. He's, I think if you ask him, he's really thinking in terms of like the, you know, the countries he's most familiar with. It's Eurocentric perhaps, but maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, it wouldn't even be Eurocentric. It would be Brit. It would be Britocentric, right? Brit- well, no, no, Britocentric, not Anglocentric. Oh yeah, yeah, my bad. Sorry, you look alike. Not for long. <laughs> oh, oh it'll soon but, be Anglocentric after Brexit is finished. Oh yeah, Oof. let's hope. I mean, let's not hope. I mean, I don't know how to well, feel about that. I guess ultimately, <laughs> Thomas right. I shouldn't say never ever happen, right? Like. Anything's possible, but I think kind of getting at what Lexi and Derek were just talking about, this strategy outlined in this book has a really difficult time mapping out onto United States politics. And I'm not just trying, I'm not simply just trying to be ethnocentric here or whatever. Like, I'm trying to think about like, as a communist, what should I do where I live? I don't think the strategy outlined in this book is very feasible it doesn't mean that there isn't insights we can't take from it but i think to do the the kind of enacting the democratic mandate of enacting a minimum program in the united states what that would require 
would already require we overturn a lot of the rules about two-party system and the way the government works to begin with. And if we're get, getting to that point of political power where you can change rules that much, it doesn't make sense to continue to try to win electoral gains with a, a communist party or whatever, or a communist group infiltrating these parties. Like, does that make sense? I don't know if I'm like really doing this justice, but I, well, I think I like mean, in order to yeah. get these kind of amendments that we were talking about earlier or whatever, like it's just such a long shot. And I think r- realistically how it's probably going to play out in the United States is that it's people are just going to get fucking sick. Like, and I'm not just saying this as like a left-wing strategy of like waiting for like the magic, you know, riot insurrection or the magic like mass strike or whatever like that. But I think like as political and economic forces and these contradictions come to fruition more and more, people are just going to get fed up and they're going to start fucking throwing rocks at shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know it's not really the Marxist center strategy or whatever, but I think what what the insight we can gain from this is that these kind of movements and insurrections peter out without something for them to plug, plug into is what my yeah. take home. So, so, so my take on this is similar. And my, my historical truth of this is actually my historical examples are all three of the major communist revolutions. They all happen at the end of wars where things have collapsed for other reasons. And that means that we have to really think about what that means. And I'm not a catastrophist. I am, I am not an accelerationist. I am none of these things. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying this as a strategy, but I think we really have to look at what that means. And I think this book starts to honestly, because it breaks down things in a historical, like this is still my favorite book on, on communist history and strategy. I just don't know that a, that applies in America and B that if I really look at the history that, we're actually isolating the right factors and talking about what went wrong. Cause some of the stuff are what went right even because a lot of the stuff you have to deal with was stuff that the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks and whoever had no control over. They had to be in the right position to take advantage of that. But what that position looks like from country to country, I'm not sure. Like it didn't look the same. I mean, honestly, it didn't look the same. Uh, and I'm not even sure that I think the Chinese revolution was a true communist revolution or anything, but it didn't look the same in the Soviet Union or as it did in China. In fact, like one of the reasons why China was so frustrated and Mao's relationship to Stalin is so weird is that the advice they kept on giving them from the Soviet experience kept on getting them killed and they just quit listening to them. And that tension led to the Sino-Soviet split. That's not dealt with in this book at all. Like we're just looking at Russia and I mean, I know why, but it's I, I come away feeling like all this does is give me an orientation to think strategically and to think long term, but not any content as to what that really means. Yeah, but that's a major improvement from most of the stuff we have. One thing I'd like to say before, yes. like to kind of soothe Sophie's negativity about America, like just from the Irish <laughs> case, it, like in, in 1798, there was a massive rebellion. United Irishmen and Wolf Tone, and they got absolutely slaughtered by the British, and it was an all time low. And then in 1840s, there was a massive famine where half the fucking country died or left. And the Irish Republican cause was on its ass, and people thought it was dead. And then, holy, holy God, 70, 80 years later, it rose and it, and it came through, and they got rid of the British. You couldn't, I'd say if you talked to somebody in 1850, it would have been inconceivable, like truly inconceivable, that they could have got rid of the, the biggest empire 
in the world and they just killed half the people and, or, or moved half the people out. So things really change. And the one thing I would say about Derek as well is that with this idea of war and stuff, well, I think it is in the crisis. It doesn't have to be a war. It could be like, for example, if it was in England right now and there actually was a kind of a commie left in the middle of Brexit, I guarantee you it would have shifted it would have. Oh no! Yeah, would have, I agree with you. You know, it would have shifted, and it it's not necessarily. It just it probably just needs. It doesn't have to be like a a war crisis. Maybe that was the ninth, the twentieth century version of it. But like, there can be simple ass political crises. Like it could have been in Ireland the two thousand and eight financial crises. You know, the reason I'm into Marx and all that is because of that. You know, and and, that, and that's and that's that's how things happen. Like, so we we can't be just like. You know, crises come along, they go like, you know, in the UK, they've had this crisis. You know, they had the IMF in the 70s, World War II in the 40s, you know, World War One in the 1910s. You know, probably like the French Revolution, of, you know, well, in 1871 yeah, and in no, 1848. Happen, and, but like, you know, is it but is this a strategy that's going to get us there? The thing is, like, if we don't have patience, we'll never even get to the place where you could even do it. If we don't have a strategy um, of building up numbers, and if we don't actually try and build a line, yeah, I'm on. You know, I'm on I agree. That, yeah, is yeah. the way to do that in the United States to build up a completely independent poll from the Democratic Party? I mean, that's honestly, that's a question for me. On, honestly, at the moment, I think it's it's so far from even being a thing. Because, like, if you were to split right now and get it the radical far. elements of the DSA off and do it that way right now or whatever, it'll well, just be another about, meaningless talk, split. Let's talk about Marxist Center, right? Like, you know, that's the yeah. That's the What's that going to be? So, again, the anti-politics people, they sometimes make an abstraction called politics, which includes things that I think are only sort of nominally called politics, like complaining online about politics and stuff like that. Like there's an entire political culture around the existing parties that if given the opportunity will take a lot of the, uh, I don't know, the obsessions of the extre of, of an extreme wing of the sort of politically oriented sort of stratum or something and harden those into something even less popular than reformism. So yeah, I was about to say like the, the, there's an abstentionist wing of the, of the Marxist center in the United States and it's already taking a very strange well, not strange. I mean, it's just taking a very, it is becoming very little different than the Marxist Leninist parties that it supposedly. Kel surprise. But anyway, here, look, we're going late. I think it's really, it's been a really interesting discussion, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Like, honestly, yeah, for sure. God, I think that there, I think there's loads of good stuff in this Mike McNair, but I think like there's something in that idea of, certainly in the American context and in the Labour Party British context, where you got first past the post in England, not proportional representation, or mm. in America where it's it's a closed thing, you're kind of. I think the the parasite thing is probably something that would be interesting for people to formalize and actually discuss. You know, so maybe that's something we can bring forward uh, in the Emancipation Network as a as mm -hmm. a thing we could work on. There actually was a group that tried to formalize that politics. The ISO was really into it. They called it the Dirty Break. Yeah, the, the, and that's really? that's actually what's in that's what's in my my mind is the ISO. They they had that. They also were impossibilists, even though they would they would deny that. But they they thought that the dirty break would be based because the this the reforms that they want in their and their transitional program are impossible. 
And so, you know, it will, pre- it will, and I would go ape crap about that because that's explicitly something Mark said not to do. They wouldn't call themselves that, but that the transitional program where you say we're agitating for these reforms because they will fail. And then yes. that'll radicalize the working class. That is the French, you know, the French Marxist party's impossibilism. That's what that's called. They advocate. That's not what I'm advocating for, though. I know, and that's the only part of what they're doing. They're also they also had the dirty break parasite strategy. But guess what? As of this week, what side of them exists and what side doesn't? Well, of them are entering the DSA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So that'll be real fun. A lot of them already had, but I mean, like, also as a side note, that group was way smaller than I thought. I thought it was like five thousand people, and it was apparently only five hundred because they never publish the numbers till like right now. But, like, you're going to see this advocated, but what it has done so far is they got, they basically have been liquidated into what they thought they were going to break. You know, it's from scandals and legit nasty stuff that was done wrong. I don't, I don't want to, like, say that, that, that the reason why the ISO was dissolved is invalid, but look at where they're at. I just want that haymarket dollar. Give me that haymarket dollar. <laughs> well, well, yeah. Well, Haymarket made that one of the most sustainable socialist organizations that was like, just say no to the Democrats, even maybe they're inconsistent about it, but they would talk about that kind of thing all the time. And during the Sanders, you know, years, but I guess probably before they, then more. Yeah. But, but there, there was a period where they were putting forward the, Hey, look, we have to be independent from the Democrats. We can't like fall for this. Like they were just doing their robotrot thing, but you know, broken clock twice a day. Like, right, right. And then they published Rebecca Solnit and people like that because it was a way to get money in. I mean, I don't think it was nefarious. I think it was just a way, like, oh, this no, it was smart. It's a way to get... But, you know, Solnit opposed Bernie. Like, I mean, she was a Clintonite. And so, okay. like, that's where we're at. That, uh, anyway. This show is also a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Mm-hmm.